Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 9th, 2012. For newcomers, help yourself to the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's lots of audios for free download there and hopefully you'll understand the system. And it is a system, calculated system, that uh, you're born into. A complete system to it, I should say, by the way. And you're, you're really indoctrinated into it by your parents initially who were indoctrinated themselves. And then school, of course, does the rest and then the media takes over. And before you know it, you're rushing off into the workplace if you can get a job. And you're too busy then to, to really think for yourself too much. So you understand the system you're born into, as I say, as a, a structure, a world structure. At the beginning, at the top, it's got money boys there, the big money boys, international lenders, and eventually they own all the corporations. They are, they do. Actually, they own most of the corporations. You'll see the big Fortune 500. These are owned by bankers at the top. Same with the military-industrial complex group as well. So they decided a long time ago to build these institutions to make sure that the bankers did uh, uh, run the military-industrial complexes. And their goal was to bring in a world society, not a a nice, free, happy society, but really using the techniques of right-wing and left-wing, they would get the world fighting each other, and through the dialectical process, they'd bring them together. They always end up on the same road. You notice that too. Two armies fighting together generally end up on the same road at the end. And that's exactly what happens through treaties, etc. So that's where we are today. We're going into the big changes. They call it transitions of society. While you go down into austerity, paying extra fees and taxes and fines and all the rest of it. And the big boys then can sell you electricity. A lot less electricity, but for an awfully expensive price. They don't lose anything. They gain, actually, by producing less at the top. And that's what they call austerity. We're in it now in some countries already. The rest have to be trained gradually to go into it as they bring us all down the garden path. Help yourself to the audios. You'll find a lot of names involved of guys who help plan the society with world meetings, uh, various panels, councils, etc. through the United Nations. And uh, they're worth reading these books. Very boring, but they'll tell you what's what they plans, And you'll say, my God, they've done it all pretty well. And then they'll give you the rest that's still to come. Everything right down to gender identity is all mentioned in some books back in the 1920s, how they'd have to destroy every source of conflict on the planet, rebuilding society totally. And that also meant man and woman. So there's nothing happening today that wasn't written about a long time ago, planned, taught through universities worldwide through a common curriculum. And these guys who who are trained in group management eventually uh, either go off into advertising or they end up working for governments or special committees under the United Nations to bring us all together because they understand mass psychology. The culture industry, of course, is a big part of it, and they certainly take over when you leave school. So you can also help me tick along too by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. 
and from the US to Canada. Don't forget you can use a personal check or an international postal money order from the post office, or you can use PayPal, or you can just send cash. Across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. And remember, straight donations are terribly welcome. But what I do is really chronicle the events as we go through them, tell you what's coming up and what's still to go, and that way you're not shocked when you hear the latest things that most folk uh, get twisted up all over. You're expecting them all. They do tell you what they're going to do. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix and as I say, we're living through a big plan, a big world plan. Just, just like a business plan when you realize that big, big businesses can plan 50 to 100 years ahead and where they want to be, and they do, including their investments and even projected takeovers, all that kind of stuff. They, they work way ahead, just like a military organization, to, to keep going and have more power, more power, more power. And today you'll hear the term governance everywhere you look, even all through university um, articles, governance, global governance, corporate governance. It's all to do with all of this new system coming together and being a new form of governance over the population of the entire planet, from the macro to the micro level. And we're really well into it today. We've been into it for a long time, actually. And, of course, um, the, the, the culture that you're living through is constantly being updated very fast now, very, very quickly with updates to the culture as we're told to adapt and adapt to the new this, the new that, the new normals all the time and be all-embracing of pretty well anything that comes down the pike. Most folk do actually uh, get updated pretty calmly. They don't really have any backlash to it because they've never really had anything solid to hold on to, at least to people around 20 years old, 25 maybe and under, whereas those a bit older can, can remember a bit of a fading culture of the past and people in their 50s can remember a longer culture where things were a bit more stable. But um, the modern culture, of course, is to keep you spinning and that way you, you can get pointed in any direction by the masters, you see. And there are masters of culture who will, will make sure we all go along the same path or else. Or else she'll go off to be uh, reconditioned, basically, at a gulag somewhere, just like the Soviet Union. Because, you see, the Soviet Union was one of the... It was a second big experiment. That they, they call it that in the history books. America was the first great experiment to see if people could handle a republican form of democracy to see if they could handle it. And some of the founding fathers of America wrote about that. They weren't quite sure if the public could basically be self-policing, in other words. And uh, the second great experiment was the Soviet Union, where science was elevated above all else, and religion, religion was basically down there somewhere, and science was to be at the top, the new gods, and they went hell for leather, in all directions of science. A lot of it was, was crazy, of course, absolutely nuts. And a lot of it, too, was, was incredibly horrific, the experiments they did on big sections of the population. But that knowledge did not go to waste because, you see, the big boys who financed the communist revolution and kept feeding them through their 70-odd years or so uh, was the Western bankers, with the permission, of course, of the governments, too. 
In fact, Canada and the U.S. fed their main enemy, which was Russia, pretty well for their whole existence. That was a Soviet Union, I should say, for their whole existence. Every year, we, we, the, the, the Russia put the bid out for the grain, and the, the, the U.S. and Canada used to fight and squabble over who was going to sell most of the grain to Russia. So, you see, things are working towards what something's called progress. They call it progress, and progress is defined by somebody at the top, of course, because they know where they're going. And you won't understand that until you do get into really intense psychology and uh, human dynamics, etc. Because these boys have so many think tanks working on just that. They have think tanks, in fact, lots of think tanks at the top where they, they, they train other organizations that then go into uh, picking people for future business leaders or even future presidents, for that matter. And Britain, one of the organizations is Common Purpose, which, which literally picks youngsters and trains them to be the future leaders of Britain for the new type of communitarianism that's to envelope Europe. And so you understand the media won't go into these things with, for, for you. They won't even mention them most of the time. The media is there for, to, to put articles, articles which you'll respond to emotionally generally. And that's their purpose and to keep you kind of off kilter, so you don't know what to attack at all. I'm talking about verbally, you know, or even rotten eggs sometimes, but you don't know what to, what, to, what to go back at, you see, because it seems all diffuse at the bottom level, and it's meant to be because the big boys who own the banks own the papers too, <laughs> and all media for that matter. But we're on a roll now, a roll into this new society to perfect all that was left imperfect, and the main part of it, of course, is man himself. And to them, they believe that they can make it perfect now with science. And eventually, of course, they will clone uh, using various techniques, plus that exogenesis, which is big stuff and up in genetics right now, where they want to give uh, basically gestate babies outside of the womb, in artificial wombs, etc. They're working really hard on that. And you think, well, that's a scientific agenda. But then I read that article to you where it's not just scientific. These scientists... Uh, a lot of them ultra, ultra feminists uh, think it's unfair that women was made to carry the child. And they're getting millions and sometimes billions of dollars across the planet to do this kind of stuff. So this is a very serious matter. Somebody is awfully, awfully interested in research. Somebody at the top, eh? For that kind of cash to go on like that. And they know where they're going with it too. And again, that's exactly what... Uh, Aldous Huxley talked about in Brave New World. In the 1933, he brought that book out, where all that would be done. He was no Dumbo. He didn't even claim to be a genius and, and voyeurism of the future. He had nothing of that. He simply said that uh, he, he was at world meetings. He belonged to the right group, or class, you might say, but it's really a, a group within a class. And out he comes with all of this stuff in 1933. And we're living through the process of going into that step right now. Quite something. I always find that really interesting. But the regular media, as I say, will give you uh, reactions, and, and your reaction to, to it, of course. So one, one article today, for instance, uh, I didn't even want to mention it because most articles are fillers just to get reactions from you. And there are also articles, that articles are written about problems that you can't solve anyway, because it's out of your hands, you see. And that gets you angry, and, and the angst gets up, and it's intended to. 
Because, you know, the more angst that you have, the less you're thinking uh, clearly and logically uh, and going into the, the whys of it all, you see. But one article today was about Wall Street speculators driving up the price of oil, even though it says here that most of the oil they're using in the U.S. now is getting manufactured in America, most of it actually in Canada. But it says oil supplies aren't being squeezed. Over 80% of America's energy needs are now being satisfied by domestic supplies. In fact, it says we're starting to become an energy exporter. But uh, And that's true. But... Um, the speculators, this, this strange system we're born into where private companies go into the casino of the stock exchange and and put everything up in the air and try... It's, it's almost like um, some strange game where you you, that, that, that you put you blow a ball up into the air with your breath and everybody's standing in that stock exchange trying to blow it higher than the next guy. And you can't stop blowing it or fall. I mean, that's really what it's like, isn't it? And we're told that this is the best they can think of, the best system they can think of. But and it is too for psychopaths because they really benefit of it. Because you see, the stock market is rigged. It's always been rigged. Always from the very beginning it was rigged. But anyway, some articles tonight I want you to touch about is about the, the media and how it can truly uh, drive or create obsessions. I think about a year ago, maybe two years, I read about a couple who uh, killed each other, a young couple, because they were terrified of global warming. And they thought that the earth was going to get cakes and baked, uh, like a mud bowl, and, and, and nothing to eat, and all that kind of stuff. Because all the propaganda... Oh, there were greenies, you see, two greenies. That's all they listened to and looked at was the greenie sites, where it was all hype and terror. And they went and killed themselves. They said there was no future. But I'll put up in an article tonight to do with climate obsessions as well to show you how bad it's getting because it, it, people who are compulsive, uh, obsessional natures uh, are, are always prey to this kind of stuff. They really are prey to this kind of stuff. So I'll put this link up tonight. And it says, Concern about climate change usually centers on rising sea levels, melting ice caps and drought. But Australian studies found people with obsessive-compulsive disorders can harbour very different worries, uh, from fear of termites gobbling up their homes to concerns about thirsty cats. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, because, or met these folk, or know many. They're, they're always worrying about something, about bacterium or whatever, or washing their hands. Or, and um, it's a study by University of Sydney researchers. It's believed to be the first in the world to document how exposure to information, information can kill you. You know, and media reports about climate change can influence people with OCDs, obsessive compulsive disorder. It says we suggest that mental health professionals need to be aware of and assess for the presence of such concerns. The study, Dr. Merwin Jones recommends. It says Dr. Jones and a co-researcher at the University of Sydney's Anxiety Disorders Clinic studied 50 people with OCDs and found 14 or 28 percent had concerns directly related to climate change. Now, if the big boys had decided to pick up and promote uh, an asteroid coming in and hitting Hawaii or something, but then these are the same folk that was, they'd be compulsive and obsessing over, over this thing coming in and going to hit Hawaii one day, 
you know, or or you know, Y2K. They were the, the perfect ones who would think the world was going to come to an end in Y2K. Uh, and the same thing happening, of course, with the year 2012. Uh, and the Mayan prophecies. Ooh, ooh, Mayan prophecies, eh? <laughs> it doesn't worry governments. You ever noticed that? I so said, when governments stop, stop, um, putting laws that are going to come down in 10, 15, 20 year times and goal, when they stop setting goals, then you can believe what the, oh, something's going to happen. But hey, they're still rushing ahead. They don't care about Mayan prophecies, folks. But yeah, compulsive behavior or obsessional disorders are really bad right now and are going to get worse. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix, talking about how media can drive obsessions and obsessive compulsive behavior. And reading about a study from Australia, uh, where obsessive people really, uh, some of them are even worried that their pet's water in the bowl will dry up. And they constantly check it all the time, every two or three minutes, you see. Mind you, if it wasn't that, it'd be something else to be obsessing on. But the media gives you the things to obsess on. And for those who kind of laugh at that, your whole culture and the way you behave, which you think is normal because everyone else is doing the same stuff, was given to you too. By professional people working in concert. Um, in France, they're bringing in a new biometric ID card. And it's going to tie in, of course, with the one coming into Canada uh, through your driving license and other other forms, of course. We knew this back in the 90s. They say Wendy Mesley did a, a documentary on it, uh, the coming national ID card. And uh, and when she eventually talked to the top company CEO that was going to manufacture it for Canada, I think it was 1998, the guy said, she said, uh, what makes you think the Canadian public will accept this? And he said, well, they'll be given no option. And that's the world you're living in today. Since then, of course, we're given no options in anything. So we're living through a script, a script. Also, tonight I'm putting up on the CEO's compensation, as they call it, and it's to do with the top 100 CEO pay packages amongst public companies. Interesting term, that, public companies, because, you see, they can be owned by members of the public all involved together in a consortium, and they call it a corporation. Your country is a corporation. Your local police belong to a corporation. Everything is corporate law, you see. And that came out of maritime law. However, and that is true. If you want to check your police and who owns them, you'll see it's a corporation. And the like in England too, it's a, com- a corporation of Manchester, or a corporation or Leeds, or a corporation of whatever, and it's corporations. You'll find that in the yellow pages even. Anyway, this article here is about um, CEOs at the top. And getting back to public companies, as you call them, it's interesting to do with the difference between public and private. They call these big corporations public companies. That's why Google and that can also take all of your information that you put up, because technically you're a member of the public, but a company can grab all your info. It's quite an interesting thing. It can also drive you loony as well, because there's so much to learn. You have to become a, a lawyer, and who wants to become one of them? Anyway, it says that the top uh, 100 CEO pay packages, and it gives a list of the names of them all, the companies they belong to, and lots of them have very familiar names too, by the way. You'll see some family names in there of 
some of the intergenerational families that seem to go on forever just raking in cash because they're very, very, very old school, you see. And as I say, this goes on and on. And then next to it, too, an article uh, by usatoday.com on IBM's top CEOs as well, who they are, how much they rake in, and, and all the rest of it. And, and some of them are on some incredible... I wonder how they manage, though, with inflation. You know, when you're getting $126 million a year and stuff like that, you know. It's, uh, I can't really imagine it because I'm, I'm born to be down there, you see. Yeah. Uh, but it says here, uh, IBM CEO Sam Palmisano uh, uh, was, got $170 million, you know. They follow Google's Eric Schmidt, who received $100 million in stock after leaving as CEO. It says, worth it or not, the trio underscored the pay inequity that has made corporate America's elite ripe targets of populist movements such as Occupy Wall Street. Moreover, their paydays draw fresh wrath from corporate governance experts. So you know, corporate, use that word governance again, experts, you see. While the contracts and performance of these CEOs differ, they do nothing to serve public opinion at times like these, says Elner Bloxham of the Value Alliance, A Closer Look. This is, um, then they go on with Neighbors Industries and Eisenberg's exit deal calls for, one, calls for $100 million cash, plus $26.64 million in stock. Not a bad severance pay, eh? Neighbor says his shares are up 50-fold under Eisenberg since 1987, but lag the standard and poor's 500 index the past decade. And Neighbor has a history of high pay relative to any standards of propriety. These guys can literally, they could take over, perhaps, yeah, they could actually buy up Africa, some of them. They've got more money raking in some of these guys' paychecks than, than governments have to play with in some countries. Because hmm? they work hard for it, you know. <laughs> anyway, this article goes down near the bottom. It gives you, again, some of the other parts of, of their pay salaries, etc. There's a whole bunch of different terms they use about earned income and, and etc. It's a whole bunch of terms I've never even seen before, but it's quite interesting. Now, this article here is more interesting too. It's to do with um, degradation of culture. And I'll start with this one because it's in, in the usual rags they put out for the public to go, oh, isn't that terrible? And, and they do, that's why they do it. This is from Britain. It says, Lifetime's Dance Mums has hit new lows by asking its children contestants, the youngest, the youngest of who is just eight years old, to dress in nude bikinis and perform burlesque routine on stage. So, you see, we're watching, you don't, you don't forget, you, you've all gone through degradation. Every, every generation since the 40s has gone through massive step-by-step degradation until you couldn't sit with your grandmother or great-grandmother. You, you, you would blush for her, I'd hope, you know. Because there's a, a reason for all of this. A reason. It's a war. A war to destroy everyone. Culture is first back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm back cutting through the matrix and talking about the degradation of culture. 
uh, and how it's a plan. It's a plan. It's war. It's a warfare plan. And this is only one of many articles I could probably pick across the world there on how degradation has been pushed and pushed and pushed by the media. Uh, it's interesting because the media is all one, really. And the newspapers work with the televisions and sometimes they're owned by the same companies. And then the, the papers will put out, oh, isn't it terrible about this thing happening in, in some television show? But they never mention why the TV show is showing it in the first place. So it's how you're played with, you see. So Lifetime Dance Mums have hit new lows by asking child contestants, the youngest of whom is just eight, to dress in nude bikinis. That's that, I guess it's a flesh-coloured thing. And perform a burlesque routine on stage. The raunchy dance moves are usually at the domain of striptease experts. Who, who's a striptease expert? All takes her clothes off every, every night when you go to bed, eh? The X-rated acts brimming with nudity, nipple tassels, and sexually explicit poses. This will turn on all the pervs, of course. But a clip, a clip from this week's show sees dance te- This is regular television in Britain. Sees dance teacher Abby Lee Miller dressing the children in tan bikinis that give the audience the impression of fuel, full nudity before asking them to act as if, to act as if a man can't afford them. So upon announcing the suggestive routine, the audience should think that you are nude, reveals Miss Myler. The show's infamously competitive moms and their daughters are clearly shocked. Yeah, I'm sure most of them go ahead anyway, I'm sure. Anyway, this is a wide-eyed eight-year-old Mackenzie tells the camera, I don't want to be naked on stage. And blonde-haired mother, Christy, is unequivocal. No one ever wants to hear the word nude associated with her 10-year-old, ever. Well, they shouldn't be there in the first place, you see. And then it says, uh, it says here that um, basically this is how they want them to, to, to act. on and To make the public all, you know, Google their eyes out at them and, 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 and wonder, etc. And the pervs will all be. This is what's put on regular television today. That was what the shock you, you see. Well, that ties in, you see, with this article here, because across the Middle East, and I mentioned this quite a few years back in articles I've read over and over and over again once in a while to show you why it's happening, you see they're pushing the Westerns, same techniques that destroyed the Western cultures are being used by the military, by the way, that work with the culture industry, big time. Uh, to bring down the Middle Eastern countries. It says, Turkish soap operas ignite culture war and Middle East revolution. And it says, new television shows are fanning the flames of culture pro- progression. They call it progress again. The Middle East showcasing new and radical social normals. And I like that. It's picked up well that term that I used. They got out there. And confronting taboos considered to be punishable by death in many hardline Islamic countries. And it says, uh, this is from Reuters, of course. And it's got a video there, and you'll see clips of these so-called steamy um, soap operas that are already having an impact in the Middle East. Once we've bombed them, whoever's left will come in and force them to watch this stuff. And, of course, the whole industry goes from Hollywood with them. Basically, the professionals are going to help them to do the shows. And then the, the fashion industry is involved, and then music as well, all that stuff that brings down the culture. Because youngsters see that, emulates it, and you can overstimulate any any particular drive that you have, e- even food itself, the need to eat. 
and people just bloat out, same with sex as well, until it becomes obsessional with them. Then they emulate all that they see. Then you've got dysfunctional society. Then you've got single mums and a welfare state. Because you see, these Islamic countries never had central banks in that as a fashion that we know them. And the first thing the central banks got to do is create a welfare state. And they love to push it by single mums. You don't need men. And then eventually, after a generation or two, everyone's dysfunctional. That's where Britain is and it's a lot of parts of the States and Canada too already. And then once that's been accomplished like Britain, up comes Cameron and says he's, he's abolishing pretty well the welfare straight, the state. So step by step by step, to destroy a healthy culture, you, you bring in the welfare state, you promote all the pornography stuff, uh, single mums. In fact, in Britain in the 70s, it says it's all we'll build now with single, single parent dwellings. And that year is over now. Now you've got dysfunctional society. Very, very good. It works very, very well. So they're using it all over the Middle East. But it ties in with something I read years ago. And it was to do with constant conflict. It's a title of uh, an article that the intelligence boys who write Parameters magazine for the military used. Constant conflict. came out in 1997. I've done shows on it before. I've actually mentioned it, read it, and so on. But they say, we've entered an age of constant conflict. That's what we're in today. It's physical conflict, constant warfare, ongoing for another hundred years, maybe, they say, you know, at the top. And the Council on Foreign Relations about articles, maybe a hundred years for this whole war. Century of change, remember? Obama, change is good. And you all thought you was talking about your pocket money. But anyway, uh, this is... Uh, Information is at once our core commodity and the most destabilizing factor of our time. Destabilizing factor. Information. Until now, our history has been, been a quest to acquire information. Today, the challenge lies in managing the information. Those of us who can sort, digest, synthesize, and apply relevant knowledge soar professionally, financially, politically, militarily, and socially. We, the winners, are a minority. They're talking about the ones that manage you, by the way. This is from the War Department. <laughs> For the world masses, you know, all of you people, you know, at the bottom, devastated by information they cannot manage or effectively interpret. And you think the Internet is good? No, it's a weapon, folks. Life is nasty and brutish and short-circuited. The general pace of change is so overwhelming and information is both the motor and signifier of change. Those humans in every country and region who cannot understand the new world, Right? Think about this, for the harder thinking, who cannot understand the new world. What new world do you think he's talking about? Or who cannot profit from its uncertainties. Remember what Rothschild said, you make your money when the blood is flowing in the street. <laughs> and the CFR use it too. How can we turn this, this terrible catastrophe into, in, into uh, our benefit, basically? To turn it to our advantage, they say. So those who cannot profit from its uncertainties or who cannot reconcile themselves to its dynamics will become the violent enemies of their inadequate governments or of their more fortunate neighbors and ultimately of the United States. We are entering a new American century in which we will become still wealthier, culturally more lethal and increasingly powerful. Now he's, he's talking about not the population of America, he's talking about the small elite that already run it. He's pretty well said that already. We will excite hatreds without precedent. We will excite hatreds without precedent. Right? We live in an age of multiple truths. 
He who warns of the clash of civilizations is incontestably right. Simultaneously, we shall see higher levels of reconstructive trafficking between civilizations than ever before. The future is bright and it's also very dark. More men and women will enjoy health and prosperity than ever before. That's a tiny minority as the, the gap in the rich and the poor goes on. Yet more will live in poverty or tumult, if only because of the ferocity of demographics, it says here. But in the, so it's more like doing with the information, but he does go on to talk about this particular part here. It says, it says, it's fashionable amongst the world's intellectual elites to decry American culture with our domestic critics amongst the loudest in complaints. But traditional intellectual elites are of shrinking relevance. So, uh, replaced by cognitive practical elites. All the stars that you worship, the celebrities and so on, are cognitive practical elites who work for the military-industrial complex, believe it or not. Just figures such as Bill Gates and Steven Spielberg, Madonna, or our most successful politicians, human beings who can recognize or create popular appetites, recreating themselves as necessary. Contemporary American culture is the most powerful in history and the most destructive of competitor cultures. The most destructive of competitor cultures. While some other cultures, such as those of East Asia, appear strong enough to survive the onslaught by adaptive behaviors, most are not. The genius, the secret weapon of American culture, is the essence that the elites despise. Ours is the first genuine people's culture. It stresses comfort and convenience, ease, and it generates pleasure from the masses. For the masses, we are Karl Marx's dream and his nightmare. Secular and religious revolutionaries in our century have made the identical mistake, imagining the workers of the world or the faithful just can't wait to go home at night to study Karl Marx or the Koran. Well, Joe Sixpack and Ivan Tepichny and Ali Katz, he says, would rather, and I'm reading this from actual written one, it says here, watch Baywatch. America's figured it out and we're brilliant at operizing our knowledge. And our cultural power will hinder even those cultures we do not undermine. See, this is a war strategy. The cultural power will hinder even those cultures we do not undermine. There is no peer competitor in the culture or military department. Our cultural empire has the addicted men and women everywhere clamoring for more. And they pay for the privilege of their disillusionment. Disillusionment, right? American culture is criticized for its impermanence, its disposable products, but therein lies its strength. All previous cultures sought ideal achievement, which, once reached, might endure in static perfection. American culture is not about the end, but the means, the dynamic process that creates, destroys, and creates anew. If our works are transient, then so are life's greatest gifts, such as passion, beauty, and the quality of light on a winter afternoon, or even life itself can be transient, right? American culture is alive, it says. Uh, this vividness and vitality is reflected in the military. We do not expect to achieve ultimate solutions, only constant improvement. And then you've got to go down. Ours is the first culture that aims to include rather than exclude the films most despised by the intellectual elite, those that feature extreme violence and to the victors, the spoils, sex, are our most popular cultural weapon. Think about all the stuff they're pumping now into the, the Islamic nations to destroy their culture, all the soaps and soapy, steamy stuff and all that. 
It says, bought or bootlegged uh, early everywhere. American action films, often in dreadful copies, are available from the upper Amazon to Mandalay. They're even more popular than our music because they're easier to understand. The action films of Stallone or Schwarzenegger or Chuck Norris rely on visual narratives that do not require dialogue for a basic understanding. They're really made for morons, folks. You don't need any vocabulary at all. Uh, they deal at the level of universal myth of pretext, celebrating the most fundamental impulses, although we have yet to produce a film as violent and cruel as the Iliad. They feature a hero, a villain, a woman to be defended, or one, and violence and sex. Complain until doomsday it sells. The enduring popularity abroad of the shop-worn Rambo series tells us for far more about humanity than is a library full of scholarly analysis. When we speak of a global information revolution, the effect of video images is more immediate and intense than that of computers. Image trumps next, or text in the mass psyche. You remember, it's true, you remember the image of something uh, rather than just the print. And computers remain a textual outgrowth demanding high-order skills. Computers demarcate the domain of the privileged. We use technology to expand our wealth, power, and opportunities. The rest gets high on pop culture. If religion is the opium of the people, video is their crack cocaine. When we and they collide, they shock us with violence, but statistically, we win. Now remember, he's talking about the military and the agenda. Not you all, when he says we. As more and more human beings are overwhelmed by information or dispossessed by the effects of information-based technologies, there will be more violence. Information victims will often see no other resort. As work becomes more cerebral, those who fail to find a place will respond by rejecting reason. We will see countries and continents divide between rich and poor in a reversal of 20th century economic trends. Developing countries will not be able to depend on physical production industries because there will always be another country willing to work cheaper. The have-nots will hate and strive to attack the haves, and we in the U.S., again the ruling elite, right? And we in the U.S. will continue to be perceived as the ultimate haves. States will struggle for advantage or revenge as their societies boil. Transnational criminality, civil strife, secessions, border conflicts and conventional wars will continue to plague the world, albeit with the lesser conflicts statistically dominant. In defense of its interests, its citizens, its allies or its clients, the United States will be required to intervene in some of these contests. We will win militarily wherever we have the guts for it because, you see, it's overwhelming force. There will be no peace. At any given moment for the rest of our lifetimes, there will be multiple conflicts in mutating forms around the globe. Violent conflicts will dominate the headlines, but cultural and economic struggles will be steadier and ultimately more decisive. What are you going through right now? Hmm? The de facto role of the U.S. Armed Forces will be to keep the world safe for our economy and open to our cultural assault. To those ends, we will do a fair amount of killing. So they go on and on and on, but of course they're using culture as a weapon, and that's why they're using it across the Middle East after they, they, with their overwhelming force, destroyed them and plundered all their natural resources. So you're not living through a day-by-day decision-making thing at the top or through politics. It was, these decisions were made a long time ago. And you've got to understand that there's massive think tanks and intelligence working on every aspect 
of controlling their own country and controlling every other country at the same time. And every fractional difference, that means the yearly difference between the generations growing up from five-year-old to six-year-old and seven-year-old, each one is perfectly catered to by those who manage your minds. Right through your lives. Right through your lives, folks. And it has worked in America, Britain, elsewhere in Europe. You now have defunct societies, as I say. These are the devastations, like ruins of a bombed city. That's what it looks like. It's the ruins of the mind. It's the ruins of what was that kept the societies whole and healthy, all utterly destroyed. And that's what they're pushing across the globe. I'll put these links up tonight too at Cutting Through the Matrix and you can have a look at them for yourselves. And it's from the military magazine parameters, which again is written primarily by the intelligence uh, sections that work on all of this stuff. They also work with, say, with Hollywood and every other major trash industry out there in the planet. And people think they're just, you know, things just blunder along and happen out of nowhere and all by themselves, all by themselves. And so one article too is what I mentioned about the Freech campaign launched in, in Australia, because we've all copied this one. Uh, and it says, you'll know by now that Mr. Ray Finkelstein, Queen's counsellor, that's a high-level lawyer, basically, has put out a 400-page report to basically regulate all news and individual political speech. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix and talking about, just before I go to the callers, I'll try and get a couple in. Mr. Finkelstein, it says, QC, Queen's Councillor, big lawyer, left-wing former federal court judge with no media experience, issued a 400-page report for the Gillard government, which calls for a big brother super regulator to regulate political speech and, amongst other things, impose new laws to stop Australians from speaking up. It's recommendation to sicken every Australian. I hope they would. But uh, literally, it's, it's even what you see on Twitter, everything else is to get monitored, and they're going to actually come out and censor you and fine you and all the rest of it for your political views. So this is going big time. I know Britain's doing the same thing too. They call it General Journalistic Ethics Committee has been set up. Same in Canada and elsewhere. So they're going to start hacking everybody's sites so that uh, don't go along with the mainstream. Now we'll go to George from Ontario. He's on the line you there, George. Hello, yes, I am, Alan. How are you? Not too bad, yeah. Um, uh, speaking of culture, uh, I've really noticed uh, in Serbia, where I'm from, um, right after the 1999 bombing, it took no more than uh, five years to actually uh, actually convert the people to actually start wearing American flags and, and, you know, actually liking that kind of culture and, you know, bringing in the food and everything and, and really, really taking it a little quicker than, than I believe they should have, really. Yeah. And um, what I noticed they had, I was watching uh, Serbian television not too long ago, and they had this one psychologist which had a, a Serbian first name but a, an English last name, and he was saying how uh, it's it, it's not mentally healthy to uh, to suspect the government or or any any opinions that, that are of the government just because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, we've been through so many wars and things like that that, you know, people are prone to that. 
And we've got to remember too, is when they go into any particular country with, with the military, there's a massive uh, part of the military. It's pretty big uh, to do with publicity. And of course, everything you see is pretty well faked. They give them the t-shirts, they give them all the lovely things, we welcome you, etc. And, and it's all PR, so you can't believe what you see. Uh, pretty well on most of the major news. In fact, they've been caught out so many times, I generally disregard what, they, what, they see, what you actually see at all. On me. Anything to do with war or just after war, I tend to try and, and just to cut it out of my mind, basically. It's generally pretty bogus. Yeah, definitely. And, and I noticed a lot of them have, a, have strange names in the, at the end. You can actually see this right now. Uh, the new finance minister of the IMF, Lagarde, the last name is this. Yes. Oh, yeah. It really rolls off the tongue, that one. And uh, I was actually reading a, an article um, that you posted about a thesis where so many people tried to uh, apply, but they only had 100 positions. I think it was like 14,000 to 100. That's right. And uh, one of the directors of that was, uh, the last name was Champion. Yes, end, that's which, true. <laughs> 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 yeah. Which uh, it's true. Really, really you know, you're not going to see a guy with that kind of last name, you know, lifting hamburgers or... Yeah, they should really call him. They call him M or something. You know, we're going to see M or give give him a, a letter from the alphabet like they do in Britain. It, it sounds better. It's more mysterious. But yeah, they they, they, they use. They, by the way, they all use fake names. Even if they interview you for anything or, or pull you in for anything, they always use fake names. You'll never get a true name from them. I, I know that from guys who have been pulled in. <laughs> I just don't know where they get them from. You know, you, you get ones like Maurice Strong. Oh yeah. Maurice Strong, Maurice Strong is actually, he's descended from a Chinese revolutionary, for those who don't know. Uh, big, big time, a big revolutionary. And he's, he's got people in uh, the main graveyard in Beijing who were basically, the relatives of his who were advisors to Mao Zedong for, for the actual techniques of guerrilla warfare. Effort to bring in communism. And here he is working for Rockefeller. Was that his original last name? No, I don't think so. I don't think so, unless he married into the strong family of New York, which is a banking family. But thanks for calling. And uh, sorry, Michael from Indiana, maybe you can call on Monday and I'll try and get you then. From Hamish, myself, for a very blustery, windy, snowy Ontario, it's good night to me, your God or your God's go with you. <laughs>